hosts of the Whale Tales podcast. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're traveling the globe as we take on cetacean migrations. Plus, we have our second Patreon-selected Funful Perfect and another special guest's whale tale. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. So, like we said, we're going to be talking about migration today. So I thought we'd start things off by giving a bit of a definition generally of what migration is. Uh, Migration is the regular, usually seasonal, movement of all or part of an animal population to and from a given area. So to be counted as a true migration and not just dispersion or interruption or just random movement, the movement of the animals should be um, annual or seasonal or some other rhythmic occurrence, and they must come back and forth between two or more um, areas. The migration can be like north, south, east, west, or it can be vertical, so up and down in a water column or even um, up and down a mountain would count as migration. Migration can be found in all the major animal groups, including including birds, mammals, fish, reptiles, amphibians, insects, crustaceans. Um, yeah, all all different kinds of animals uh, have the potential to migrate. What you're saying is that migration is diverse, and yet also the definition is specific. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The trigger for migration could be all kinds of different things. It might be local climate. It could be availability of food. It could be um, circadian or um, circannual rhythms that um, cause them to notice uh, a change in the weather. It could be for mating or breeding reasons. For example, they move between a place that has high food abundance and maybe high also other uh, competition or other predators, and then they move to have their meat mating or breeding season um, in a safer or maybe less abundant area that is safer for their offspring. Um, so we're going to be talking about cetaceans, obviously, in this episode, but um, lots of other animals do really cool migrations. For example, um, there's daily migrations that happen within the water column of, in particular, plankton, zooplankton, will move up and down in the water column. So uh, in the evenings, they go up to the surface to eat. And then in the daytime, they go to depth to avoid predators that are also at the surface. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, Lindsay, do you want to talk a little bit more specifically about specifically about cetacean migration? Yeah, so not all cetaceans migrate, even though that's a thing that obviously took a long time for people to understand. Um, it's believed that a lot of the whale species migrate. They're the big migrators of the cetacean world. Um, but as you can imagine, their migrations are poorly understood because it's really hard to do that kind of thing. Um, So some of the most well-studied migrations include gray whales, which migrate between Alaska and Russia uh, and Baja, California, North Atlantic right whales, which move between the cold waters of northeastern U.S. and Canada to warmer waters in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, Uh, southern right whales, who feed in Antarctica in the summer and then migrate north uh, to Australia to breed and give birth. Uh, On the east coast of Australia, southern right whales also migrate between Cape Byron and Antarctica, but have gone as far as uh, Hervey Bay in Queensland, as far north. Humpback whales, uh, which move between northern feeding grounds and southern breeding grounds, or vice versa in the southern hemisphere. It's really confusing when you think about when you're so used to humpbacks in the northern hemisphere, like moving north um, in the summer, and then they move south in the 
summer in Antarctica, but also that's, you know, January. So it's just like migrations and months and hemispheres just makes it I'm so always so confused as to where whales are going at what time. Um, blue whales also migrate from um, similarly to humpbacks in the Pacific. They migrate from California down to Mexico and Costa Rica. Most beluga whales migrate south as well as the ice pack advances in up north. One population summers in the Mackenzie River, River estuary of the Northwest Territories and then migrates 5,000 kilometers southwest to the Bering Sea in the winter. That's the migration I feel like I most want to see. <laughs> mm, yeah, because it's so many belugas. So many belugas. And all the babies. All the babies. Um, other beluga populations migrate north in the autumn. Yeah, they're not like birds. They're going for specific because then they go south for to have the babies. Um, yeah, so belugas that spend the summer in Hudson Bay, where they have their babies in the estuaries, they migrate north into the open bay in the winter. So whale migration can uh, often be timed uh, to be extremely consistent year after year. Gray whales in California have been observed since 1967. Um, and once in the 80s, the migration shifted by a week and everybody lost their damn minds. It's true. Like, I was reading the article that was published about it and it was like, what? Which I guess if you are used to, like, large numbers of gray whales showing up to the day, that was the craziest thing about this. And then, like, a large number of gray whales don't show up one day and then, yeah. yeah. It feels like they could make a Hallmark movie out about it. Like, oh my god, what are we gonna do? And then they have to run up and she meets a handsome marine biologist and then they all come back to her ailing father and daughter, I guess, while they all watch the grey whales migrate and everybody cries. Sounds great. Yeah, it does. movies for Hallmark. (laughs) So just when we think we have it all figured out, even if it's not week uh, to the day, um, we the whales of course do surprise us. Um, some humpbacks are going to different wintering grounds than they were before, um, and some are uh, humpbacks as we talked about in our last episode, two episodes ago, are staying further north now, probably probably due to warming uh, oceans, but also because there's a lot of humpbacks now, and we don't really know what they did 150 years ago when there was this many humpbacks because we weren't here. So, the overachiever of cetacean migration, that is fun to say, is (laughs) um, a female humpback in 2010 went from a breeding ground in Brazil and was discovered on the east coast of Madagascar. That is insane. Yeah. These areas are separated by 9,800 kilometers, which is twice as far as whales usually migrate. Um, This is the longest documented migration by any mammal, obviously, because that's (laughs) madness. Yeah. Crazy, crazy whale. And also, I feel like, maybe not always Madagascar, but like over there in the sort of Mediterranean, Indian oceans, animals seem to always get lost over there. There was that gray whale that ended up in the Mediterranean. Oh yeah, the Mediterranean Sea gray whale. That was so weird. But also gray whales end up lost over here. Well, there were killer whales in False Creek earlier this year, but also that that False Creek gray whale, we know him very well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Always coming back. (laughs) Very true. Uh, So we've talked about sort of why they migrate and the types of migrations they do. But one of the questions I have had about migrations for a long time is how? Like, so they don't have maps. All the animals that migrate, every animal, 
obviously doesn't look at a map before they do this. So I've always... Are you sure? Well, I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, you don't know. Maybe they have underwater maps. We don't know. But um, I have always been really fascinated with, like, especially when I was young and I lived in the prairies and Canadian geese were, like, there one minute and then gone the next and there were millions of them that just disappeared. I was like, how do they know how to do this? Uh, Because Anna Paquin tells them to. (laughs) Yes. Duh. Uh, Man, I need to rewatch that movie. Anyway. So, unfortunately, scientists uh, can't ask animals how they migrate and how they know how to get to their places. Uh, And what we have been able to study doesn't totally tell us the mechanisms that animals are using to do this. But scientists are very good at coming up with theories, so there are a lot of them. Uh, Depending on the species, it's possible (laughs) that they are migrating based on the movement of the sun and moon and stars. Uh, for whales specifically, it's much more likely that they're navigating using some kind of underwater geographic landmark, uh, protect- potentially the continental shelves that they're migrating along, which would be fascinating to like try and put a rover down there mm. and just like try and do it without using GPS or anything. Like, that'd be really cool, but I don't think anyone is going to just shell out a billion dollars for that because they'll no. probably lose the rover. <laughs> yeah. Eh, you never know. Um, there's also the possibility that some animals use scent for migration as different scents are carried along winds, which ties into weather as a possible factor for migration. Uh, and then there's also the ability to sense magnetic fields. And that would be really cool if animals could do that. Um, and potentially who knows, who knows how whales migrate? Um, there has been a study that it's correlational, so it's not causal. <laughs> <laughs> there was a study that we'll put in the show notes that looked at uh, what were the differences in the water when bottlenose dolphins were migrating. And as Lindsay mentioned earlier, bottlenose dolphins don't migrate in the same way that big baleen whales do. Um, but they do kind of move, like Sarah said, kind of offshore and then inshore. And this study saw a correlational relationship between water temperature and salinity and the movements of the bottlenose dolphins. So maybe, who knows? Lots of cool speculation. And that's what scientists are great at. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then we just have kind of some fun stats about cetacean migrations, because I just want to say that again. Uh, And just kind of migrations as a whole. The longest mammal migration is by the humpback whale. And although the one that you mentioned, Lindsay, was definitely an overachiever, the typical humpback whale migration is about 85,000 kilometers. No, sorry, 8,500 kilometers each way. Um, The longest migration, just to put that in perspective, by a land mammal as opposed to a marine mammal, is the caribou, which can travel about 3,000 miles. I should have done the conversion. (laughs) That's like about, they can travel about 6,500 kilometers. So there's a whole extra 2,000 kilometers on there for the whales. 
Um, and then to put that in perspective, the monarch butterfly does the longest insect migration, and that is just a measly 4,700 kilometers. Lazy butts. When you look at size. Yeah, Compare size. Impressive. Yeah. The interesting thing about the um, monarch um, migration is it's actually multi-generational. So it's not the same individuals that make the whole migration down. Yes. It's multiple generations, which is very cool. Yes. If you're an insect nerd like me. <laughs> just at all. Like, if you think about the fact that somehow, again, we're not sure of the mechanism, but somehow that's communicated genetically to their offspring to keep going yeah. in a certain direction. That's so cool. Very cool. Because yeah. don't butterflies only live for like two weeks by the time they reach the butterfly stage? Yeah, the last generation of monarchs lives longer. There's a really cool documentary. I think it's on Netflix um, about it. I highly recommend. No, it's not on Netflix. It's a YouTube video, but it's like the quality of something on Netflix. I'll put a link in. There is, though, an animal that can beat even the humpback whale for migration. As cool as cetacean migrations are, they really kind of are nothing compared to bird migrations. So we do just have to acknowledge that the Arctic tern does a round trip that's 80, I'm sorry, that's 80,000 kilometers long. In addition to migrations being really cool and really long, they're also really, really old. Scientists have taken samples of what they believe to be shells or barnacle shells from Pleistocene fossils of ancient whale, specifically humpback and gray whale, ancient lineages, basically the fossil that they would have evolved from. Um, And they can see by breaking those barnacle shells down into their components that they can actually see that migrations have been happening since the Pleistocene era. So they were able to confirm that these ancestors to humpback and gray whales were migrating and probably migrating along basically the same route based on what they could see in the i'm not totally sure what exactly they were looking at but we've included the link to the article um one of the things that we also want to highlight when we're looking at cetacean migrations is that it's particularly important to think about how cetaceans migrate when you want to protect them Uh, And this was one of the reasons that we kind of wanted to bring this up in this particular episode of the podcast, because uh, there are really big impacts if along a cetacean's migration route, one country is working really, really hard to put in efforts to protect that species, and the other countries that share the migration route of that animal are maybe working a little less hard or have other focuses. Um... So we wanted to kind of highlight a really great effort, a multi a international effort in the Mediterranean, because they have put together a marine protected area. They did this last year in 2018 along the Spanish Mediterranean coast, but it's been declared the marine protected area for a total of 10 marine mammals that are ranked as threatened including humpback whales, striped dolphins, fin whales, uh, loggerhead turtles, and this was an international effort to work together to try and put a, a space together that, that would be acknowledged and respected by international boundaries. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, and that's really cool. That would have only happened if people wrote to their various members of parliament and Congress and all the various political people out there to tell them to work together to do this. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for Nicole's favorite part. 
Fun flavor facts, fun flavor facts, got fun flavor facts, yeah! So today's fun flipper fact is on fin whales. It was voted on by our patrons. Thank you again. If you want to become a patron, you can follow the link in our show notes and help support us in our podcast and our online community in general. Um, and we hope to really grow that online community. And you can also get weekly newsletters. It's very exciting. All right. So everybody ready for fin whale flacks? You want to try that again? <laughs> everybody ready for fin whale facts? Yes. I can talk. It's good. Um, so let's start with Nicole's favorite part of any fun flipper fact. The Latin name. Da, da, da. Nerd. <laughs> I know. But this one's cool, guys. I think all of them are cool. The scientific name for the fin whale is Balanoptera physalis. And Balanoptera is the Latin for winged whale which is lovely. They're not quite as long in the pectoral flipper as a humpback whale, but they're still pretty long, and since they're really big, that makes sense. And the bellows is physalis, sorry, and physalis means bellows, which is particularly appropriate for the fin whale because fin whales are tied with blue whales for producing the lowest frequency sound of any animal anywhere. Super cool fun fact, when scientists first recorded fin whale sounds, they actually thought they were recording the sounds of tectonic plates crashing against each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so bellows is pretty appropriate. Um, some of, you know, the fast stats about fin whales, which I'm sure you can look up on your own, but because you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to tell you, uh, they're long. They're the second longest animal in the world, second to the blue whale. So they tie the blue whale for low sounds, but they come in a just tiny fraction of a second place for length. They're usually about 27 meters or sort of 75 to 85 feet long. They weigh... This is a quite a large range because, of course, it's really hard to weigh a large whale like this. But they weigh somewhere between 40 and 80 tons. So, you know, that's only doubling their weight if they're 40. Yeah. Oh, sometimes these facts are fun. <laughs> uh, and they're found in all the world's oceans. So they can be found... I mean, they don't usually go right up to either hemisphere, so they're not usually found in the Arctic or Antarctic, but pretty much anywhere else in the world there's a chance of you seeing one. And what makes fin whales a little bit easier to observe than their big cousins, the blue whales, or bigger cousins, the blue whales, is that fin whales are fairly social, especially for a baleen whale. As we've discussed in previous episodes, baleen whales don't tend to hang out with each other unless there's some kind of foraging behavior going on. Um, there are exceptions to that, of course, but they tend to be more solitary, whereas fin whales are frequently seen in groups of two to six. So if you think hmm. about how big those animals are, and yep. then seeing six of them at a time. Yep, that's, that's a lot of whale. Yeah. The other thing that I kind of wanted to talk about for a fun flipper fact on fin whales is the unique coloration that these whales have. So if you're a Batman fan, then you might really like fin whales because they could do a stand-in for Two-Face. They have two colored faces. <laughs> Their faces are two different colors. No idea where you were going with that. <laughs> I know, that's why I was fun. <laughs> 
But really, so the right side of their face, kind of the underskin, underside of their jaw and their right lower lip, as well as, this is the craziest part, the baleen inside the right side of their mouth, that is all like a white, a pale yellow white color. But then on the left side of their face, same pattern, or sorry, the same parts, the underside of their jaw, their lips, and their baleen, they're all dark gray. So random. Uh, the most commonly agreed upon idea about why this is, is that it might act as some kind of flashing behavior. If they're foraging together, they might be able to kind of flash and, and scare the fish into a bigger bait ball to feed on. Hmm. But they haven't ever been able to prove that. So, who knows? Yeah. They're just two-faced. Two-faced whiffs. And my final little element of the fun flipper fact on fin whales is one that surprised me because I've never heard it before, but apparently, according to the internet, a common nickname for fin whales is a razorback. Had either of you guys ever heard that before? No, I just, sometimes people call them finback whales, and for a while I was like, is this a different whale? (laughs) But it's not. No. Yeah. So, I don't really know where the internet got this idea. Maybe it's regional? Possibly. I couldn't sort of identify a particular area where this is their common nickname. Um, But the internet is always glowing with other information. And apparently the Razorback nickname came because they do have a pronounced dorsal ridge right behind their dorsal fin. If you are a listener and you know of fin whales as Razorbacks, then we'd love to know where you're located. Because maybe that's mm-hmm. something that, well, certainly when we talk about fin whales here in BC, I had never heard that before. And I was like, it's no. a common nickname. I'm like, oh, okay. So there we go. That's the end of Fun Flipper Facts. Yay! And if you want to find out more about fin whales, read some more fin whale stories, we have about 10 fin whale stories on our website, uh, whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animals. Yeah. And speaking of tales like stories, we have another guest this week to tell our whale tale. Um, Our guest this week is Selena. Similarly to our guest last episode, she is a whale watcher for out in the Salish Sea, surprisingly, the, to no one, because this is where we live. Uh, and she's going to tell us a story about one of her favorite Biggs killer whales. My name is Selena, and my relationship with killer whales, or orcas, but I prefer to call them killer whales, so that's where we're going to go with that, started many years ago um, when I was a child. So I won't um, tell you exactly the year, because there's people that will be able to do the math. Uh, But needless to say, for a young girl born in Ontario, um, looking at Lake Ontario and all the other Great Lakes was fabulous for the water it provided for us. But I was only about six when I realized that uh, my mother told me when we were at the park having a picnic that um, there was no whales or dolphins or porpoise for that matter that were going to leap out of the water. So instantly, um, pretty sure I was shattered on the inside, but I don't know if a six-year-old looks like that's what would be happening at a picnic at a park when whales and dolphins aren't leaping. Uh, So it was just a matter of time before I was drawn to the West Coast. It took a long time and I did take the long way, but I eventually made my way out on the water as a naturalist, um, starting as uh, someone who was always interested in cetaceans, particularly killer whales and um, the northern residents, southern residents. I really didn't know much about transients or now what we can 
can call bigs or prefer to. Um, but uh, there's so many stories about the northern residents and the southern residents that I feel like it's time that maybe we put the spotlight on maybe some of those individuals that people haven't gotten to know over the years. And the first time I met um, the male orca or killer whale, as I said, I would refer to them as, um, I was pretty much mesmerized right from the beginning. I think it's his sheer size uh, that I do feel that he is one of the largest animals that I've ever seen. I'm not being able to gauge his weight or his measurements, just looking at his dorsal fin and the slight curve and the fact that he is just around 20 years old or was less than that. Our relationship started 10 years ago where I got to know him. Uh, but the animal I am talking about is T19B, known as Galliano. So also my favorite of the Southern Gulf Islands. So it just seemed like I was falling hard for this particular animal when it came to telling stories about him. I soon learned that he's part of the T18 group. So not exactly sure if the oldest female or matriarch is actually directly related to his mother, T19, but they do have constant companionship. So it's likely that they are sisters or related somehow or just really enjoy getting along. Um, so T18 is the oldest female I do believe born in 1960 something, and I should have this information in front of me, in fact. Um, but um, yeah, she seems to be the oldest of the matriarchs. And then uh, there is T19, the mother, T19B, and T19C, who is also looking like quite the big boy out there. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, you know, that was really out of the norm to see an animal of his sheer size be so successful at catching things. Um, let alone catching and hunting on his own. So as much as I love his um, so-called grandmother or matriarch and matriarch mother, I was kind of looking at them like, you're letting him, the most clunky, largest animal, um, play baseball pretty much by himself with seals. I call that tenderizing the meat, of course. Um, so doing all the damage, so making it easier for him to just consume it, which he easily could. Um, his mouth is huge. However, he would just sort of tenderize the meat, make it easier, and bring it right over to his mother and so-called grandmother. Um, at the time, his brother was just a little bit over being maybe nine years old at the time. So the attention span wasn't really there, and he wasn't really very helpful, in my opinion. Maybe good company, but not really super helpful when it came to making kills. So the first time I bumped into him was right at the mouth of the Fraser River, like I said, probably a decade ago, and he was just batting seals out of the air, like the kind of stuff you see on National Geographic where you never think you're actually going to see it in real life. But it was quite remarkable. And it was right then instantly that I was like, who is this animal? I've never seen this animal before. Uh, the next time we met up, pretty sure once again, it was him um, all by himself racing around. I saw him fully out of the water for just a brief moment and managed to get a picture of him at the surface. It wasn't until I brought it home and put it on the computer because it was that long ago, maybe not even a laptop. In fact, um, I didn't even realize that it was a harbor porpoise that he successfully found uh, probably hiding somewhat motionless right in the middle of the Strait of Georgia in a kelp bed. Um, so he got that all by himself and once again brought it to mom and so-called grandma and little brother was off doing his own thing. Um, then it was some time later that uh, I realized I had gotten the picture of a spy hop 
really close up, but I couldn't see the pectoral flippers um, from the um, picture that I had. And most recently with the updated catalog, I realized that it is in fact him due to some really obvious scars that he has on his neck area and right above his left pec. Um, but now even more dig distinguished or dignified as a, an adult male out there um, is the fact that his dorsal fin is almost as broad as it is long. It's very, very large and it's very unique. Also, it has a nick in it now. So when I saw him years ago, there was no nick, but now he's even easier to identify. Um, and yeah, I've seen him do a full breach out of the water. Unfortunately, didn't get it on camera, but he's one of the most impressive males that I've ever seen. He is not lazy whatsoever. And I've even seen him hang out with the T101s um, because they're just a group of boys too. And they shared a meal underwater, dorsal fin to dorsal fin. Um, they were frolicking around Gabriel Island, just playing in the kelp. People were running along the rocks, um, just enjoying the moment as well as we were from the water. And I realized that I couldn't even identify what it is that the two males had basically, just like out of a cartoon, come face to face, rostrum to rostrum, grab something and basically tore the flesh off of it um, from the middle of the animal all the way to the end. So there is a picture of some kind of a carcass of some sort, but I still to this day can't figure out what it is. It was only maybe two weeks ago that I saw him for the first time in what felt like years. And uh, once again, he was stalking the shoreline all by himself. Uh, I was rather impressed by the size of his brother. Uh, his dorsal fin is not as um, broad, I would guess you would say, but it's definitely tall and it's sort of getting that defined curvy shape to it that seems very popular with the males. So um, I'm impressed because these two older females known as as the matriarchs usually are in charge of everything and definitely these two boys have grown into me mama's boys the exact story that you tell about the matriarchs um being the smaller animals but being the boss and these two girls pretty much haven't made because now with uh, t19c actually helping cooperating um uh, they could potentially live a very long time um these males are super successful at what they do i am growing a strong emotion towards his brother too but uh, he definitely will always be my favorite bigs out there and he matches all the criteria that you could ever want in a son i always tell people terrible fathers the best sons the best brothers in the world and i think that's why we can all relate to them so thank you for learning a little bit more uh, about one of my favorite guys out there my killer whale boyfriend is what i call him galliano t19b uh, if you haven't seen him or met him, I do encourage you to get out there on the water and see him. He is quite the impressive sight to see. So thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, and enjoy your time out on the water. Aww. I love Selena's stories. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thanks so much, Selena, for sharing your story. If you would like to share your story with us, you can always share it on our website. But also, if you want to share your story and potentially be featured on the podcast, you can just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us, info at whaletales.org. Um, the email address will be in the show notes. And um, we would love to hear your story. We'd also love to read it if you would rather email it to us. So either way, we're excited to hear your stories. All right, everybody, it's the time of the podcast where we talk about what you can do to help cetaceans, be that on their migration or not. Uh, and 
And this episode, we wanted to focus on something that's particularly timely for any of our listeners who are Canadian, because coming up on October 21st is a federal election. And so we wanted to talk about the importance of being heard by your representative. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be super politically active, but if protecting whales or protecting the waters they live in or just the environment in general is something that you are passionate about, then there is seriously no better thing that you can do to protect that passion of yours than to tell your representative, whether it's an MP or a congressman or whoever it is, a congressperson, that's the very, very, very best thing that you can do for these animals. Yes, of course, there are small actions that you can take every day in your life to help, but the big things that will make huge changes in the lives of these animals, those are only going to be accomplished by governments. And governments are elected by the people. And I know that it's very easy to get jaded about the political process, uh, but it's something certainly I'm really passionate about. And it's something that is a lot easier than we usually think it is. Because it really is just sending an email. Finding the email address for your local MP, if you're Canadian, is... And then, yeah, and then in a couple weeks, their jobs are up for, in Canada, for your approval. Like, mm-hmm. you get to choose, did this person do what I am hoping that they would do to represent my voice at our at the federal level? Um, I moved this year, so, like, since the last federal election, and it was super easy for me to figure out whether or not I'm registered at my new address or not. Um, I'll put the link to that in the show notes because, yeah, it took me, I don't know, two minutes on my phone to just, like, submit my registration information. They're like, yeah, you're registered at your new address. I was like, oh, good job, Pask Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not our place in this podcast to tell you who to vote for because that is a very personal decision. Uh, But what we do want to encourage you to do is to do research before voting. It's not enough to just go and vote, although we certainly want you to do that, but be an informed citizen. Whatever issue you're passionate about, even if it's not necessarily the issues that we've talked about on this podcast, look at your local representatives, the people who are running in your area, find out what their stance is on those issues, and make an informed decision, and then go vote. Please, please, please be an informed citizen and do your civic duty because there are so many people in the world who don't have the opportunity to do that who really shouldn't take it for granted yeah awesome um and just as a note even if if you're scared of google searches um (laughs) the the links to representatives i think um the house of representatives in canada and the house of representatives in the states i think are the ones we have listed already in our tales of saving whales what you can do list um, nice. So you can just go there, which is a link in the show notes. So it's just a couple of like clicks and then you can write your email instead of that scary, scary Google. Who knows what the Google doodle is going to be? Ah! Uh, as well, over there, you can find a great list of small things that you can do when it's not election day. Um, and you've already written your letter to your um, representative. You can do all sorts of other things to help cetaceans, marine life and the planet. Uh, that link is in the top of our show notes every episode. 
Can I say one more thing about the emails? Because mm-hmm. if this is feedback I've gotten from people before when I've, I've talked about this as an action that they can take. The emails don't have to be worded as if you were going to be speaking in the House of Representatives. Yeah, also no, true. This really can be, and I've, I've worked in political places before. I, I know how responsive ministers are to any kind of email. It can literally be, Dear Minister X, I care about Wales. I want you to, too. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's they yeah, just yeah. need to hear that it matters, whether it's an eloquent five page essay or just a two sentence email. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing to remember is just to be professional and respectful, but it doesn't need to be the most polished, most eloquent thing. You can just talk about how you feel about an issue and why it's important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Be yourself. Don't try to be mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah. So I think this brings us to the end of our episode. I'll, you can find all of our info on our website, whale-tales.org, including our merch, our Patreon with our new newsletter perk, our podcast subscription link, and over 600 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. You can also head to our site to share your stories. Remember, it's not a big deal, it's not scary, and you don't have to be an expert. If you've seen a cetacean, we would love to hear about it and add your story to our library. So click the share link on our site or contact us on social media at whaletales.org or just email us a voice memo like I said before and tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter. And as Sarah said before, this that's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia. Thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great day.